Well, I now invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 20. And this uh, morning we'll be looking at verses 28 through 38. And as you recall, Paul is in Miletus. He's on his third missionary journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. He stopped at Miletus because he doesn't have time to spend in Ephesus. But he calls the elders of the church at Ephesus to come down and meet him because he wants to spend a little bit of time with them before he departs for Jerusalem. Uh, Being an elder is certainly a high calling. It's an incredible privilege, though it can be time-consuming and challenging and demanding at times. It is a great blessing and honor to serve in that capacity. Paul has called the elders of the church at Ephesus to come down. He does not anticipate ever seeing them again. They will be looking upon him for the last time and he wants to impart his heart to them. He wants to leave them with a set of exhortations that will be ringing in their ears long after he is gone that they might, by the grace of God, faithfully fulfill their duties to God in ministering to the church. So as we uh, read this passage, uh, starting in verse 28, Paul is now addressing the elders. So, if you've ever wondered about preaching sermons to oneself, I get to do that this morning. Uh, for me and the other elders in this church because it's primarily aimed at us. But it also will give you hopefully a heart to know how to better pray for us and also a vision for what the local church should be about. Also, as you just see his heart in pouring out on these uh, elders and, and these exhortations. So let me begin reading. In Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28. And the Word of God, again, is inspired by God and profitable. It's always profitable. So it's our blessing to read this together this morning. Verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He has purchased with His own blood. I know that after My departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God, to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. And you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He Himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when He had said these things, He knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul, and repeatedly kissed him, grieving, especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. May God bless the reading of His Word. Well, so who is he talking to? He's talking to elders. If you look back up at verse 17... It says from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to to him the elders of the church. So these are the elders that he's addressing. Who are elders? Well, the word elder 
comes from, borrowed from the Jewish synagogues, normally refers to older men, uh, and by their age you assume they have a level of maturity and respect. And really the concept of elders within the local church is not so much based on being old, but it's having maturity. It's the mark of, of those who are old. Those who have maturity. Those are the ones who should be holding the office of an elder. Uh, it could be younger men, middle-aged men, older men. But the idea of the elder doesn't look so much at the age within the local church, but their maturity in Christ. Their maturity in the things of the Word of God. So they're called elders. Notice it's plural. Look in verse 28. He now... of the. Uh, passage that we just read, he speaks to them also and calls them overseers. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now this is the word that the King James translates as bishops. And it's borrowed from the Greek context. Not the Jewish synagogue, but the Greek context. The word overseer was used for a variety of Greek officials and officers, both civil and in the military. And it speaks to one who supervises, one who protects, one who guards, one who keeps watch over. So it indicates the function of elders are to be overseers. Same group, elders, now called overseers, same group of people. They are to be overseers, watching over the flock of God entrusted to their care. Also in verse 28, he describes them as shepherds. And the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. This is the verbal uh, form of the noun shepherd. And shepherd just means pastor. Pastor means shepherd. Again, referred to the same group of men. So the elders are called overseers. They're also called shepherds or pastors. Now, a shepherd is one who cares for and loves a sheep. The shepherd's responsibility is to feed them with God's truth, lead them in God's way, and defend them from God's enemies. So that the word pastor or shepherd... Again, a pastor is just what a shepherd is. Word for a shepherd indicates, again, the character of the elders. So the word elders stresses their their maturity. The word overseers stresses their uh, function of oversight. And shepherd, pastor indicates the character and function of their ministry as well. Now, Christ is the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. He's the great shepherd referred to in the New Testament who loves his sheep, who laid down his life for his sheep. And the elders are merely the under-shepherds under the authority of Christ. So Christ is the head. He's the one and only head of the church. The elders are the under-shepherds under the authority of Jesus Christ. So that elders who are also overseers and shepherds and pastors are not to be like those shepherds that God condemns in the Old Testament. For example, in Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, uh, God exhorts them for feeding themselves, but not the sheep. The Old Testament false shepherds that were ruling over Israel were slaughtering the sheep and devouring them and clothing themselves with the wool of the sheep. They did not strengthen the sickly. They did not heal the disease. They did not bind up the broken or brought back the lost. The sheep are being scattered and becoming food for every beast of the field. And the shepherds were doing nothing. They were not going after them, searching for them, ministering to them at all. They were idle, unworthy, false shepherds. So the elders are not supposed to be that, that way. So the elders are to be overseers. They have oversight. They're to be shepherds, pastors. And they're also appointed by the Holy Spirit. 
in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Meaning that the Spirit of God sovereignly directed the church in choosing and appointing these men who serve as elders. So they are there by God's sovereign choice and determination. One of the things I want to point out again and emphasize just for a moment is that all of these concepts are in the plural for the local church. There are elders of the church. Overseers of the church. It's always plural. Now some small churches may not be able to have a plural, but the, but the goal is always to have a plurality among the elders. This is the top uh, human leadership authority within the local church under the authority of Christ. should always be a plurality. There's no biblical warrant for a one-man band approach to ministry where a single pastor has all the authority and all the power. That is unbiblical. No one should be the king of the mountain because that position is already taken by Jesus Christ who's not only the king of the mountain, He's the king of the universe. And you should not have one man within a local church who sets himself up in the role of being the authority. That is Christ. And so what you see emphasized in this passage is that it is a plurality of elders that should rule in the stead of Christ, not one man. The elders are to be a team complementing each other with their various gifts and abilities and talents. This was clearly understood by one of the earliest writings of, of the uh, early church in the Didache, which some date this as early as 60 AD, some say later. But the title of it is The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, the, the, the Didache was kind of an early church manual given to local churches. Notice it says, appoint therefore for yourselves bishops. And in the Greek of the Didache, it's the same word overseer that we have in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. So appoint, so whoever translated this was uh, probably a King James guy because he used the word bishops. But, uh, which is a, not a good word in my opinion. But appoint therefore for yourselves overseers and deacons, worthy of the Lord, men who are meek and not covetous and true and approved, for they perform for you the service of prophets and teachers. Now they got it right. Two offices within the church, elders and deacons. Not pastor, elders and deacons. All the elders are pastors. They're all shepherds. That's the way it was set up in the New Testament. And the Didache, at this point, reflected that accurately. However, things started to change pretty quickly. For example, Ignatius of Antioch, who died in 107 AD, he was believed to be a disciple of the Apostle John, but he started the shift away from the New Testament pattern of plurality of elders by making the office of bishop separate from elders. In other words, he didn't read Acts 20 very carefully where overseers and elders refer to the same group of people. No, he made overseers a separate office from elders. And then they elevated it to one man. And this is where the whole downward trend started within church history. The bishop was made, or the overseer, was made into a singular office while elders were plural and the bishop or overseer became the single leader of the church. And this is where church history can be such a help, but they can go astray very quickly. That's why church history is not our authority. The Bible is and only the Bible is our authority. We can look at church history. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they are woefully wrong. And in this case, they began to stray very early wanting to elevate one man as the key leader of the local church. 
That's not the way Paul set it up. Remember, even on his first missionary journey, as he began to track back through those churches in Galatia, he appointed elders, plural, for every church. And that's what we feel like is biblical. So, what are the exhortations to these elders? Well, notice he says in verse 28, be on guard. Be on guard for yourself. Verse 28. The elders are now being pushed out of the nest by the Apostle Paul. He's not going to go back. He's not planning on going back. He's never going to see their faces again. So now they've got to fly on their own. Little birds have been under his training. They have seen him. They've spent three years with him. They've been blessed by him. Probably converted by him. Raised up in the faith by him. Taught by him. He was their spiritual father. Now he's leaving them. He's not going to be coming back. At least that's what in his plan. So he exhorts them in verse 28, be on guard for yourselves. To be on guard means to be on the alert. Pay close attention to. Be watchful for dangers. Be like walking through the African grasslands and forests full of poisonous snakes and lions. You've got to always be on the alert for movement in the grass close to you. It could be a black mamba. Poisonous snake. You've got to lift up your eyes and be looking at the horizon. Look out for those two little beady eyes that are fixed right on you. It's a lion in waiting. Be on guard. Be alert. Pay close attention. Walk circumspectly. Always looking around for danger. Paul says this to uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, something similar. Timothy ministered at Ephesus, so there's a connection here. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So he's exhorting these elders to be on guard. They're to be humble servants. They're to be godly examples to the flock, both in doctrine and also in living out the Christian life. But you be on guard. Why do they need to be on guard? For themselves. Well, for a number of reasons. The first one is because they are sinful men like everybody else. They must be vigilant to guard their own hearts against all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Elders need to be on guard for themselves because they can be uh, succumb to temptations. So they need to always be watchful and realize the weakness of their own soul and the need for Christ. The need for His grace. Secondly, they also need to uh, be on guard for themselves because they will give an account to God for their ministry. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The author writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they will keep, they keep watch over your souls. They are overseers. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So elders need to guard themselves because we will stand before the Lord and give an account for our ministry. That's why James said to teachers, let few of you be teachers because you'll incur a greater judgment. Any volunteers will be elders? It has made me quake in my boots many, many times. Another reason why elders need to be on guard for themselves is because elders cannot care for others if they neglect the care and cultivation of their own souls. Think of this, elders. We are only as useful to Christ as we are devoted to Christ. And churches rarely rise to a greater expression of holiness 
than that which they see in the lives of their elders and their leaders. Very convicting. Elders should be diligent in using the means of grace regularly to continue to grow spiritually. Staying in the Word of God. Being men of prayer. Men who love the souls of men and women. Men who are regular in worshiping God. Partaking all the means of grace available to us. We need to be men who walk the talk lest we become hypocrites. So we can't really care for others if we're not caring for ourselves. And that's another reason why we need to be committed to guarding ourselves. And lastly, elders need to guard ourselves because Satan has his eye on us. Richard Baxter says that Satan seeks first to ruin the shepherd so the flock will be scattered. He says, take heed to yourselves. This is Richard Baxter in his famous book on Reformed Pastor speaking to elders. And he says, take heed to yourselves because the tempter will make his first and sharpest attack on you. He knows what devastation he's likely to make among the rest if he can make the leaders fall before their eyes. Take heed then, for the enemy has a special eye on you. Take heed to yourselves, lest he outwit you. The devil is a greater scholar than you are and a more nimble arguer. And whenever he prevails against you, he will make you the instrument of your own ruin. Do not allow him to use you as the Philistines use Samson. First to deprive you of your strength, then put out your eyes, and finally to make you the subject of his triumph and derision. So that every time a church leader falls, it brings shame to the name of Christ. And how many of us were saddened when we heard of Pastor Joshua Harris, a well-known Christian author and purity advocate, announced the end of his marriage. And then shortly afterwards, he denied the faith. He no longer considers himself a Christian. And he now advocates for the LGBTQ lifestyle. He did not guard himself. So on top of that in verse 28, not only are elders, overseers, pastors, or shepherds, are not only to guard themselves, he says you're also supposed to guard all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Verse 28. So we are not only to guard ourselves, but we're to guard the flock. Well, who is the flock? And why is Paul so concerned that elders, pastors, overseers guard the flock? Who are they? Why are they so important? Well, they're very important to Christ. First off, they're referred to as the flock in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. That means they're sheep. But it's implied that they belong to God. They are God's flock. And we're to guard all the sheep. None should be neglected who needs care. The weak and the strong, the healthy and the sick, the mature and the unstable. Elders are to know the flock and be concerned for their well-being and spiritual welfare and minister appropriately. But they belong to God. They are His flock. His sheep. Secondly, they're referred to as the church of God. This is the ecclesia word. This is the word that's used not only of the church and the Septuagint, it's used of the assembly of Israel in the Old Testament as well. They're the church of God. It means the called out ones. Ecclesia, the called out ones. 
They are called out of the world by God's sovereign grace. He has chosen by God to be His people. And it's our honor to serve the called out ones of God. The chosen, the elect. To show our love to Christ by caring for His church who are called out for His special love, care, and destiny with Him. Thirdly, in verse 28, the church of God, the flock, is also referred to as being purchased with His own blood. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20 says, You are not your own, for you've been bought with a price. So why are they so special? Why are elders supposed to to give themselves and and be diligent and guarding after this group of people? Because Christ bought them with His blood. They are very special to the great shepherd. Notice the purchase price is His own blood. A term of personal sacrifice. Christ didn't sacrifice somebody else. He sacrificed Himself. And that speaks to His great love for the sheep and His willingness to die for them to pay the penalty for their sins on the cross. Now notice in this verse, God does not bleed. But the God-man does in His human nature. Right? Matthew Henry put it well that the blood was His as a man. Yet so close is the union between the divine and the human nature that it is here called the blood of God, for it was the blood of Him who is the Son of God. So as the church of God which He, the God-man, purchased through His human nature, dying on the cross, shedding blood, and it's His own blood that was shed. Again, Richard Baxter, in, in, in pressing the point, elders, this is why you need to love and sacrifice for the sheep. Because Christ sacrificed for the sheep. He loves those sheep. He chose them. He gave Himself for them. And again, Richard Baxter from the Reformed Pastor is quoting in his own imagination, Christ speaking to the elders and He said, did I die for them? And will you not look after them? Were they worthy of My blood and are they not worthy of your labor? Did I come down from heaven to earth to seek and to save that which was lost? And will you not go to the next door or street or village to seek them? And this is why they're so special and require such a ministry of the elders because they are loved by the great shepherd, the good shepherd. And then the flock is also called disciples. Later on in verse 30, disciples are learners, they're pupils, they need to be taught. They are students and followers of Christ, they need training. They are disciples. And elders are supposed to help them In that process. Notice within this context, you have the whole Trinity involved. The flock is God's church. They are bought by Christ's blood. And they are guarded by men whom the Holy Spirit has commissioned to be their guardians and pastors. And why should we guard the flock? Well, because of the nature of their enemies. Look at verse 29. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Savage wolves will come in among you. Now, wolves are the chief enemy of sheep. Sheep are defenseless against them, they are easy prey. And Christ warned about false prophets as being wolves in sheep's clothing. Those are the guys who come in sneak into the church. The wolves have no mercy on sheep. By their lies, they will affect the false teachers who are the wolves. They will affect the way the flock thinks. Some will be drawn away. Lives will be compromised. Marriages will be ruined. 
testimonies will lose their effectiveness. And those advancing on the front lines of godly living will fade to the rear and those in the fight will go AWOL and retreat if the wolves get hold of them. So godly elders need to insert themselves between the wolves and the sheep and stand their ground. The sword of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit to stand firm and expose the lies, the attacks of the wolves and speak truth to the sheep. And godly elders need to be able to encourage the weak and the struggling, the bruised and the bleeding and protect them and nurse them back to health. So it's a savage wolves. Now notice the language there. They're not just wolves. Now Paul is thinking of people. People that are going to be messing with Christ's flock. And he calls them wolves. And not just wolves, but savage wolves that will come and tear flesh and rip bones, break bones, tear skin, devour and eat, turn them into a bloody carcass. That's the way he envisions these people. And elders need to be able to acknowledge and and recognize that there are wolves out there. And we need to be able to defend the flock against such wolves. Wolves coming from the outside who come into the church. But then, look at what he says when he adds to that in verse 30. And from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So you have savage wolves from the outside coming in. Then he says, but from your own midst, from within the church, there will be perverse men who will arise and mislead many. It's interesting how often Paul and Peter and Jude are all trying to warn their readers about this danger from within. In Galatians 2, Paul warned them about false brethren secretly brought in who sneaked in to spy out our liberty. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Peter in 2 Peter 2 spoke of false prophets who arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. They'll be in the church. And there are there have been many false teachers within the church. There's still some there today. And they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, denying even the master who bought them. Jude says that certain persons have crept in unnoticed who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. So part of the function of elders is not only to be watchful of what's coming at the church from the outside, but what's growing on the inside, the cancer. The doctrinal cancers within the church. We have to be alert and on guard against those things coming in. And what do they do? Well, they're primarily these wolves, these perverse men, are primarily bringing their damage to the church through either false doctrine or sinful, sensual living. Those are the two main things you see in the New Testament. And it's interesting that that wolves are a fitting analogy for these false teachers because wolves do damage with what? Their mouths. And these false teachers do damage with their mouths. With what they say, what they teach, what they infer. So wolves are a fitting analogy for these false teachers. They're experts at mixing truth and error together. Packaging it in a convincing way. They will convince you that they alone have discovered this truth. No one else has seen this truth. Boy, is that not a dead giveaway. That all others are blind. Oh, believe me. If someone said disagrees with that, don't believe them. Believe me, and gullible sheep will swallow it whole. And that's where the colts prey on the sheep. Now these savage wolves from the outside could also include persecutors. 
Because a lot of times these guys are saying things about the church that are lies to stir up the civil authorities and other people to come in and attack and persecute the church. Remember the riot at Ephesus in the theater that we saw earlier. It's one of the things Paul's very sensitive to. He escaped, but not all of them did. So there can be, there can be persecution. That can be a form of the danger that these savage wolves uh, are a threat to the church. But there are other things, just the, the false doctrines. Uh, and in the first century, there was a huge area from the Judaizers who were wanting to, to bring aspects of the Mosaic Law as your obedience to them are necessary for salvation, whether it's circumcision or whatever it is. They're always adding something to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what they do. And Paul is very clear in Galatians 1 that if you add anything, one thing to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you add one work, whether it's circumcision back then or baptism today or any of the sacraments of the church or any good work, then that gospel is a curse, according to Paul in Galatians chapter 1. And Paul is constantly having to deal with these false teachers, these wolves wanting to come in and say, oh, you, yeah, faith in Christ, beautiful, wonderful. But have you been circumcised? If you haven't been circumcised, you're not saved yet. If you haven't been baptized, if you haven't been baptized, you're not saved yet. Oh, you're not taking of the Mass or the sacraments. Oh, you're not saved yet. All of that is a cursed teaching. It's a false gospel. So that was one of the big false doctrines that was being taught. There are a number of others. Paul had to warn Timothy about men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection had already taken place. And they upset the faith of some. So the elders have to be attuned to understanding these uh, false teachings, these false gospels coming into the... And he's not talking about a lot of the secondary issues where believers differ. But these false teachers were corrupting the gospel of grace. Adding works. Adding obedience or whatever it may be as a necessary ingredient for salvation. Got to be on guard against it. But not only false doctrine, but false living. Immorality sensuality within the church. Now later on, when uh, the Lord Jesus writes a letter to the church at Ephesus where these elders are representing in Revelation chapter 2, Christ actually commends them in one regard because they, uh, it says, that they put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not for they are false apostles. That was good. And they also hated the Nicolaitans, which Jesus says, I also hate. Well, who are the Nicolaitans? Well, the Nicolaitans was a first century heretical group who taught a lawless antinomianism. You can basically just kind of live any way you want, and you know, everything's fine between you and God. And they were bringing immorality into the church and idolatry into the church through the paganism. So the Gentile believers were, were very uh, susceptible to this. Oh, you can worship Christ and you can still go to the, to the pagan temple and you can eat meat sacrificed to idols and you can engage in temple prostitution and you can still be a good Christian. Like many are saying today in, the, in these kinds of contexts. You can still do that and, and, uh, and serve the Lord and be a good, a good follower of Christ. That's what the false teachers were saying. Peter says many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. So not only do the elders have to guard the sheep, the flock, bought and paid for by the blood of Christ and protect them from false doctrine, but also from immoral sensual living within the church. That's an abomination. 
So in verse 31, I have totally forgot my PowerPoint to keep you up. There we go. Uh, so we come to verse 31 where he begins to wrap this up. And he says, Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So he now begins to exhort them again, be alert. Don't be sleepy-headed. And this is actually the word that Jesus exhorted His disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Be alert. Watch and wait. And what did the disciples do when He went off and prayed? You know, they fell asleep three times. What Paul is saying is don't, don't fall asleep on, on the job. Keep watch. Stay awake. Be constant in readiness. Peter would say, be sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Elders, be on the alert. Satan is out there prowling. He's prowling around your people. He's prowling around your flock. You need to be on the alert because he wants to devour them. And you need to guard them and protect them. The motivation for all this, Paul just says, look, don't you remember when I was there with you for three years, night and day? I didn't cease to admonish you with tears. Do you see my energy? Do you see my commitment? Do you see my sacrifice? And what he's trying to do is to motivate them to rise up to this calling that they have. Vigilance is ever the price of liberty. And so he's trying to exhort them to follow his own example. And then his final testimony and departure in verse 32, Now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Notice what he does. He's about ready to leave. He says, I'm not going to be with you anymore. I'm not going to be around to answer your questions or to help you on any of the issues that you have. But what I'm going to do is something far better than me being there. I'm going to commend you to God who's with you. God will be your strength. God will be your guide. He'll be your protection. He'll lead you. He'll give you all that you need to perform your duty. So Paul is entrusting them into the Father's hands. He's entrusting them into the hands of the Good Shepherd. And even though he's being separated from them, still the Lord is near to them and they can always turn to Him. Similar to what Christ said in the Gospel of John when He says, you know, I'm going to be taken from you, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And He'll comfort you. He'll guide you. And Paul in a different way is in effect just saying, look, I'm leaving, but I'm commending you to God. God is the one you need, not me. I'm committing you into God's hands. And then he adds into that also, into the Word of His grace. That's what you need. This is the Scriptures. Elders, I'm committing to you. I'm commending you to God and to the Word of God. To the Scriptures. The Gospel of grace. The Word of grace. Because all of our salvation begins with grace and ends with grace. And all in between, it flows continually with the river of grace. It's the Word of grace. We need God's grace. And the Word of God is the primary means of tapping into that river of grace that God has for us. I love the way it adds to that. It's the Word of His grace which is able to build you up. Elders, are you weak? Yes, we're weak. Do you need more grace? Yes, we need more grace. I commend you to the Word of God. It's the Word of God is able to build you up and make you men of God. Make you workmen who don't need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. To make you servants who are able to guard those entrusted to your care. Oh, I commend to you the Word of God. Because that's what's going to build you up and through you to build up the flock of God. 
and to give you that inheritance which is given among those who are sanctified. That inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's the Word of God that gives you that hope of that ultimate glory to come. So endure hardship. Do the work of a, of a godly man. And whatever you sacrifice, whatever you lose, whatever you suffer in this life, the Lord will, will reward you with that crown of righteousness laid up in heaven that He will give to His servants and to all who have loved His appearing. So in effect, Paul is saying, O elders, I commend you to God and to His holy Scriptures. Take hold of them. Embrace them. Love them. Cherish them. Let them show you the glory of the grace of God in the face of Christ. Let Christ through His Word sustain you and purify you and guide you and empower you for, for your work is greater than your strength. It's greater than your grace. You need more strength. You need more grace. I certainly do. And the grace that you need comes from Christ through His Word. I commend you to that fountain of flowing grace. So let the Word of Grace be your theme. Let it be your song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. And so he commends to them out of a heart full of love for these men. He commends them to God and to the Holy Scriptures so that they might not only grow and be built up themselves, but they might be a blessing to those under their, their charge. And finally in verse 33 and following, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. I don't know how the prosperity gospel preachers read that and get away with it, but you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. So that He worked. Remember, He worked in the mornings. He worked as a tent maker. He worked and in the afternoon. He taught in the school of Tyrannus and then ministered in the evening. He was not averse to accepting support, but because of his, I think, his unique position in many ways, he didn't want to be beholden to anybody. He coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothes. For him, the ministry was not about money. It's not about worldly wealth. His focus was not on fortune or ease. He says, I'm not in it to become wealthy so I can drive a Rolls Royce or own my own plane and fly all over the place. But my focus is on finishing my race. It's caring for the flock. And he says, as Jesus taught us, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And after all these exhortations in verse 36, when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. So here you have these elders, the Apostle Paul with the other seven men with him, and they all get down on their knees. Not that we always have to pray on our knees, but praying on your knees is a position of humility and adoration and petition. They all got down on their knees and they began to pray. He prayed with them. He prayed for them and they prayed for Him. And they began to weep aloud in verse 37. And they embraced Him and kissed Him over and over and over again because of their love for this man. Because He brought the water of life to them. Because He loved them and cared for them and cried for them. And they saw His love for three years. And they returned His love with their love. And they embraced Him. And they wept and they kissed Him, grieving especially over the Word which He had spoken, that they would not see His face again. And they, were and they 
were accompanying him to the ship. Well, it's a very moving uh, goodbye that they shared. But he had poured out his heart to the elders. He had exhorted them in three ways to be on guard for yourself, to be on guard for the flock, and to be on the alert. And then he said goodbye. And he sailed out of their lives forever. I think the final takeaway, I think, is when you hear these things and you uh, consider the elders in your church, now you know why we need such prayer. Because this task is far beyond our strength and our grace. We need more grace. We probably use some more elders too. But you need to understand at least what's on the heart of the Apostle Paul as to what our task is And when you see us falling short or where we need to do a better job, pray for us. Come and encourage us and exhort us. We need that as well. But uh, we need the grace of God. And we need the Word of His grace. And we need the Lord. So you can see Paul's heart because that's what a local church should be about. And that's what elders should do. And how we need God's grace to do it. So we pray for you. You pray for us. So let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we do thank You, Lord, just that we can uh, study this passage and see the Apostle Paul just unload his heart to these men. These men who are entrusted with a very sober and serious responsibility. A task which is they are unable to fulfill apart from Your grace in their heart and their lives. And Lord, how I feel that as well. And I'm sure Alan and Mike share that as well. That Lord, we need Your grace. We are men who are sinners like everyone else. But we are men who are one day given account. We are men who want to be godly examples. We are men who want to be a blessing to this church. And yet, Lord, so often we sense our our own failures and our own weaknesses. So dear Lord, build us up through the Word of Your grace that we might be a blessing to Your flock, Your church, purchased with Your blood, Lord Jesus because You love them that much. Help us to serve them in serving You. For we ask it in Jesus' name.